0: to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org.
1: Thank you for coming. This is the uh, second installment of the three-part series uh, that we're doing this winter and spring on the role of partisan media in in American democracy. So we had the first workshop a few weeks ago, and that dealt with uh, the role of partisan press in history. And the idea was to try and think a little bit about the implications uh, of the nation's sort of past experience with a partisan press for the current era. We have one more meeting after this, which is going to be on April 10th, and that is called uh, Partisanship in the Nonpartisan Press, the Implications of Media Bias for Democracy. And we have two speakers, uh, distinguished speakers joining us then, Kathleen Hall Jamieson from the Annenberg School at University of Pennsylvania and Jesse Shapiro from the University of Chicago. Um, Tom Patterson will be uh, moderating that session, so please attend if you can. Today, however, we're going to focus squarely on the current era and think about whether and how partisan media matter for American democracy. uh, Is the current crisis in Ukraine a direct predictable outgrowth of the failure of President Obama to quickly identify the attack on U.S. diplomats at the American consulate in Benghazi as an act of terror and to subsequently identify and punish the perpetrators? Um, Is Obamacare on the brink of self-immolation as an utter failure, or is it working well for most people? Uh, I think your answer to these questions could perhaps depend on your choice of news outlet. If you're a regular viewer of Fox News, you might be inclined to answer both questions in the affirmative. Uh, Or at minimum, you might be more likely to do so than if you were a regular consumer of MSNBC. But can we attribute any differences of this sort to the slanted versions of the news that these outlets offer to viewers? Or is it mostly the case that like-minded consumers who have already made up their minds and have clear attitudes on these and other topics tune in because they know that uh, given outlets likely to support what they already know to be true, their pre-existing beliefs. How many people are actually influenced by the information they encounter on partisan news outlets like Fox or MSNBC? Is it a lot, uh, or is it uh, only the uh, already ideologically extreme few? Um, it's certainly the case that journalists, pundits, and the political class more generally routinely argue that partisan media are playing. An ever increasing role in shaping American political discourse and in affecting electoral outcomes. And according to most, they're doing so in ways we probably ought not to feel very good about (coughs) by polarizing the public and, (coughs) excuse me, ultimately uh, polarizing policymaking in Washington. But is it fair to lay this uh, contemporary polarization at the doorstep of the partisan press? And if so, By what mechanism are partisan media actually contributing to polarization and gridlock? Is their effect profound, or is it exaggerated? So to help us think about these questions, we have two of the leading scholars today uh, who are working in this area. Uh, On my left is uh, Talia Stroud, who is an associate professor of communication studies and assistant director of the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Participation at the University of Texas, Austin. She's interested in how the media affect political behavior and attitudes and how political behaviors and attitudes affect media choice. Her recent book, uh, Niche News, The Politics of News Choice, received the International Communication Association's Outstanding Book Award for 2012. Um, her work on selective exposure has re- received additional awards. The Michael Fow Outstanding Article Award from the National Communication Association, and the KQ and Her Award from the International Communication Association. Um, On my right, Kevin Arsenault is Associate Professor of Political Science and a faculty affiliate in the Temple University Institute for Public Affairs. He specializes in the study of political behavior and focuses on research questions uh, investigating the extent to which citizens influence political outcomes. His work has appeared in uh, all of the top political science journals. Um, Most important for our purposes, he's co-author With Martin Johnson of the 2014 Goldsmith Award winning book, uh, Changing Minds or Changing Channels Partisan News in an Age of Choice. And with that, I'll uh, turn the floor over to them. Um,
2: uh, Well,
1: probably you don't want to stay where you are.
3: If you don't block the screen, I'll just come around. Sure. Um, Well, thank you very much for that that, uh, kind introduction, Matt. Um, And thanks. Uh, for the invitation to to come out here. It's a a, um, pleasure to um, talk about my work with you guys and and, uh, uh, also Talia and and Sue in a uh, wonderful discussion about um, this topic, which I think has, I think probably at the end of this, you'll see there, I think we have more questions than answers at at this point. Um, So I'll start with what is pretty much my favorite figure from the book. So this is the average number of channels per household in the United States from the mid-1960s to the, um, about 2010. I think we actually have data that go to 2012, but anyways, what's nice about um, um, this figure is that it is a wonderful example, a textbook example, of exponential uh, growth curve. So what you see is that the, the number of channels um, in the average household is fairly stable up until about the 1990s, where you have an explosion in the number. Um, so back in the 1960s, there were your three familiar channels, the broadcast networks. And today, the average home has over 130 channels, on average, um, that they could choose from. Now, the reason for this, um, as we Martin and I go into detail in the book, is because of technological advances in the 1990s that allowed cable providers to offer more channels. Now, what's interesting about this is that actually cable providers um, envisioned this actually happening, the possibility that cable would provide people with more choices and more op- um, options than they currently have from broadcast networks. Um, if you go back to the 1970s, there was a, a commission called the Alpha P. Sloan Commission that actually wrote a big long tome about the, um, you know, how they envisioned cable would improve uh, all our lives they spent a little very little bit of time on on news and politics and what they had to say was mostly hopeful that what cable could do is actually put in the american um, living room um, unfettered access to news and information Um, now it that's actually happened you can watch the news 24 hours a day seven days a week if you want but there's a wrinkle in the whole story which is that the news that people have available to them tend to be ideologically tinged. So we have Fox on the right, we have MSNBC on the left. So it's not quite what the Alfred P. Sloan uh, Commission envisioned. This is not objective news reportage of the current events with you know, reasoned and balanced discussions. These are tendentious presentations of the facts um, that are designed to benefit one political party or ideological viewpoint. So I'll begin with the so what question. Luckily, I don't have to really do that because people smarter than me already have. So we have folks like Cass Sunstein who worried that this is gonna lead to uh, polarization. Um, Bharat Manju worries about people actually holding a different set of facts. You know, we don't uh, necessarily have a common conversation anymore that the broadcast news Media brought into the American living room. Instead, we have Benghazi causing uh, the Ukrainian attack, um, so forth and so on. Um, and of course, there's a concern that this that partisan news becomes a nefarious force uh, of ill that could corrupt the legislative process. Right there. Okay. Now. Let me say at the outset that I think that all of these are are valid possibilities. And and, um, I think that some of these things, in fact, could be going on. But we want to interrogate it a little bit more deeply. Um, One of the things that uh, these concerns are premised on is a presumption that audiences are passive. So if we go back to the old uh, hypodermic needle model um, from Clapper in the 19... Uh, mid-1900s, the notion here is that the viewer is much like a patient and a passive patient, if you will, and the content of the news is like a drug injected into their veins. They they can't um, resist it even if they wanted to. Now, what's interesting today, though, is that there is this notion that people have some agency. They have agency over what they choose to watch. And what do they choose to watch? Well, they're like a moth drawn to the flame choosing to watch like-minded news which reinforces, polarizes, and does lots of bad things. And so as a result of their passivity, if we want to resolve this problem, I hate to, I always feel like I'm picking on Cass Sunstein, but he provides such nice quotes. Um, if we want to um, solve this problem, all people need to do is consume counterattitudinal uh, news. Uh, that is, news that is opposition. <coughs> have liberals watch Fox, have uh, I'm sorry, yeah, and have conservatives watch MSNBC. The idea here is, hey, they can't resist the content, so it'll force them to moderate their views. Well, we actually take issue with the passive audience presumption, as you can probably imagine where I'm, I'm going with this. Um, we think of audiences as, a, as having uh, a more active role. And in fact, if we go back to, to an event in history, which is a, in our collective memory, I think, is thought of, as being the key prime example of a massive media effect, we would go back to the War of the Worlds broadcast in the late 1930s by Orson Welles. Um, this is a, I'm in a media center, so is everybody familiar with this story? Okay, so I have to go into it. So we got, we've got Martians invading. We've got people turning on the, the broadcast late And they think, oh my God, Martians are invading. They run outside, they get in their cars, they get their guns, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff, right? Well, the funny thing is that actually, if we go back to the scholarship just after this event happens, what we find is that's not the whole story. Yes, there are a a group of people who did, in fact, do this, but it was a very small group. And of course, that very small group of people created vivid um, uh, testimony. The effects that media can have, but for the most part, a lot of the people that tuned in um, actually were active participants in what they consumed. So, the there are probably the largest group of people who tuned in late realized this is too weird to actually be true. So it must be a, it must be fiction. But what I actually think is is kind of interesting and, and exemplary of what, what, what we're going what I'm going to tell you about in a minute is this number three, the group number three. These people turned on the radio and conducted an external test. What do you mean by external test? What you um, all mean is these folks turned on the radio broadcast, got a little scared. Maybe there are Martians attacking. But before they got their Winchester rifle and went outside, they decided to turn the channel to see whether or not other broadcasts were talking about this invasion. Finding that that wasn't the case, they reached the logical conclusion that this must be a fiction. OK. So what's our argument? Our argument builds off of this. Um, audiences are active. That's not our idea. This is an old idea, but it's one that, that we believe in. And think that um, all of us should take back and remember, take a step back and remember that is something that is canonical when we're thinking about the effects of partisan media. So if we're going to do that, then I think our first step is we have to recognize that selective exposure to like-minded news or whatever reflects purpose of choices. People are choosing what to watch for reasons. Um, the second thing is that people aren't blank slates, that they have the ability to accept or reject what, what it is that they receive. What percentage
4: of audiences
3: is Um That's a good question. Um, you know, from our research, I don't think that uh, I would even venture a guess uh, because, as I'll show you in a second, our experimental stuff is um, it, we're not doing this on um, random samples. OK. Um, uh, but so if the. Simple, simple, simple to be
4: in similar in the study of War of the Worlds.
3: Yeah. The simple oh, simple that. Memory yeah, yeah, yeah. So the answer to that is, though I can answer that by, the, by telling you the percent that weren't, that were at, behaved in a passive way. And it was closer to about 5%. Uh, viewers that actually sort of freaked out about this. Um, so if that's still true today, I don't know. Um, our second point is that the expansion of choice um, actually works to limit the news media's reach rather than augment it. Now the, the big reason here is we have 100, over 130 channels now and only a handful mm-hmm. of those are news. Most of them are devoted to entertainment. And therefore, people can select out. They can avoid watching the news altogether if they wish. Um, a final point, though, is that it's not just that you have entertainment seekers, as um, Marcus Pryor calls them, selecting themselves out of the news audience. The news seekers that are left behind, the folks that do tune in to the, these part of the news shows, argument is these people are already strong. They already have strong opinions. One thing we know about this group of people from extant research is that they should actually be harder to move uh, around. Um, in a sense, you're already preaching to the choir. All right. So with that sort of background set up, let me show you a little bit of evidence uh, for this. In doing so, I'll focus on the um, work that we have in the book that looks at polarization since that's the topic of this discussion. Yes.
0: Can I a uh, quick question for clarification? Sure. When you're talking about media, it sounds like you're talking about it most in terms of like TV. Are you also including digital content or just really like news TV yeah. media?
3: So Our research focuses on news TV, but I don't think that anything that we have to say uh, wouldn't apply also to, to digital media, media as well, since people have to select into those audiences too. They have like Matthew Hinman's work that um, demonstrates that most of what happens um, on the internet, for instance, is people seeking entertainment. Um, so I think that you can apply what we're saying to, to the digital um, um, media, but we don't actually go there. So, um, so at, that, at this point, that's a supposition rather than something I can demonstrate. Um, okay, so let's start with this notion that um, audiences are active. So flex, purpose of choices, and people are not blank slates. So at the very least, we think there's evidence that, that, that you sort. Um, your typical MSNBC viewer is to the left, your typical Fox uh, viewer is actually quite a bit to the right. Now, you might say, but couldn't that be the effects of those of that content? Certainly it could be, probably somewhat, to some extent it is. But I also want to show you this, which is that um, even in terms of broad demographics, we see um, pretty key differences between these audiences. Um, Fox News viewers tend to be wealthier. They tend to be more white. They tend to be more married. Um, So, you know, it's unlikely that Fox News is causing people to get married or rich or change their skin color. Um, I I guess anything's possible. That that average age
4: is less than the overall network demographic. So you're just talking about the evening talk shows here?
3: Yes. 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 Um, And and actually, you know, we – In an earlier version of this table, (laughs) we actually included the um, um, people who viewed these uh, um, cable networks, uh, Mm -hmm. mainstream, sort of more mainstream uh, shows. And those were also different from the talk shows. Um, All right. So the next thing I want to demonstrate or talk to you about is what are the effects of these shows? Well, we're going to do that. It's going to be difficult to figure this out from just talking to people who actually watch these shows, because as I've already shown you, they differ from each other on on a lot of things. So it could be the effects of the shows, or it could be of uh, something about them. They're more conservative, they're more wealthy, less wealthy, so forth. So we're going to use the tried and true experimental method, right? So the dotted lines there represent um, people being randomly assigned to groups. The solid line means that. Everybody um, uh, basically takes the post-test instrument. So very briefly here, because I know everybody's probably on the page with this, but by randomly assigning folks to these groups, we were able to construct groups that are comparable in every way except for one group has been forced to watch some, exposed to some sort of news show, and another group, our control group, is is exposed to an entertainment show instead. So if we see any differences, for instance, on the post-test a survey instrument, then that's pretty good evidence that it was probably something to do with the content of the um, new show that people were asked to watch. So what do we what do we find? Well, with this these bars here represent um, uh, sort of an aggregation across a number of experiments that we've done, and we measured uh, level of polarization. So what I mean by polarization are liberals taking a more uh, left view and uh, conservatives taking a more right view after watching the the uh, these shows, and re- attitude reinforcement is people being more likely, more strongly wedded to their attitude than they were before they watched the show. Now, what the blue um, bar shows you is the effect of being being forced to to, to watch the pro-attitude news show. That is, a liberal watching MSNBC, a conservative watching Fox. Now, what we show here is completely consistent with everything. That um, a lot of observers are worried about, and it's also consistent with with Talia's work, that exposure to these shows can polarize and they can reinforce people's attitudes. They can have strong effects. Um, but the interesting thing is the, the red bar staying next to it, which is, that it is um which is that it's also the case that if people are exposed to counterattitudinal shows, so that it shows that they shouldn't have an affinity for, liberals watching Fox, conservatives watching MSNBC, that also polarizes their attitudes, that also reinforces their their pre-existing beliefs. So this is evidence that people are not passive. They're not blank slates. They can reject information that they disagree with. In fact, it can even make them, it can push them completely in the other direction. Um, So in this sense, um, I think it, I think, we offer some strong evidence that um, when people watch partisan news shows, they don't necessarily have um, these sort of simplistic effects that, that I think a lot of people, um, especially um, media pundits, kind of imagine. All right, that's just one piece of our argument. The other piece of our argument is that, hey, that's all well and good and probably scary. But if, if people can't avoid the news, then it actually means that we probably maybe need not be so concerned about partisan news media having massive, large, direct media effects, Um, largely because there are other choices out there. Um, So what we need to do then is figure out how do we study the effects of media, these media, in a world where there is choice. something I really can't do with this experimental design, right, because I'm forcing people with a traditional experiment and forcing people to be exposed to something. So, what we did was we added another condition. And what that condition did is very simply gave people a choice. They could choose among all the stuff that we were forcing people in the other treatment groups to do. So, they could choose among the, the pro attitudinal show, a counter attitudinal show, or entertainment options. Um, and they actually, um, it actually looked like this. No, it didn't actually look like this, but this is a, uh, a, a schema of how the experiment was set up. The subjects actually had a remote control; they could change the channel, um, they could go back and forth, just like you would in your own own living room. All right, so these were built into um, um, the experiments that we did, um, so we can compare them to the forced exposure treatments. And what what we find is that just adding a modicum of choice—not a whole lot of choice—we I mean, didn't give people one hundred and thirty things to <coughs> choose from. Bless you. Um, Thank you. What what we find is that giving people just a little bit of choice uh, diminishes the overall effects, of polarizing effects, um, of partisan news media. Now, it doesn't make them completely go away, but it does make them smaller. Now, that leaves us, I think, with a question. Um, it's, what, it's obviously what we expected, but the question that, that um, we often got at conferences and so forth was, why? And that's what we sort of set off um, to try to answer in sort of the rest of the book, which is um, which is to say, we think our number three it provides the answer. Now, part of this has to do with people are avoiding, people are selecting out, so that would be just simple dilution, right? But we don't think that's all of the story. We also think that media effects um, are we have to take seriously that they are contingent on people's media choices. So. In particular, if news seekers are already sort of strong partisan members of the choir, they're probably a little bit harder to move around. Um, and maybe can only, you can only move them around under certain conditions. Whereas it's the entertainment seekers, those are the folks that are most likely to, to respond to partisan content, except for they're not watching. OK, how do I demonstrate that? Very quickly, since I'm just giving you guys an overview, we have to bring in yet another experimental design, um, which I can discuss why we need to do that if you want. But essentially, to make this as clean as possible, we we need to measure people's preferences, that is, what they would want to watch, before we actually expose them to it. Um, so we do that, and then after people tell us what they would want to watch if they had a choice, we force them to watch something randomly. So at random, people are assigned to either watch the news show um, or an entertainment show, and then we're back in the world of just comparing um, treatment effects. Now, what this design allows us to do, though, is it allows us to measure the treatment, the effects of these treatments, among subgroups. In particular, we're interested in people who would prefer not to watch these partisan news shows given a choice, that is, entertainment seekers, and people who would prefer to watch these news shows, so news seekers. And what, what, um, What we found across um, a number of experiments is that the the effects of partisan news shows tend to be much larger among entertainment seekers than news seekers. They tend to be much smaller among news seekers because they're already polarized to begin with, and they're more difficult to move around. The one little interesting exception to that is when we forced um, news seekers to watch counterattitudinal news shows. it still didn't have as quite of a large of effect as it did for entertainment seekers, but it still certainly had a, a pretty good sized one. Um, and we speculate a little bit on that in the book, um, but partially it's because news seekers tend to select like-minded news. They're not watching, you know, liberals are not turning on Fox, and when you make them watch Fox, they don't like it. Um, all right, so let me, let me wrap up and let, let Talia talk. Um, so, we think this is evidence that active uh, audiences are active, and that shapes media effects. But I should hasten to add that we're not—we don't want to be on record as saying that partisan news does not matter. In fact, um, I, I think that, you know, as social scientists, our goal here should should not be necessarily to test whether or not there's a presence or an absence of a particular media effect. Um, I think, in, in you know, when it comes down to it we should be in the, in the job of measuring the size of effects. So our argument would be that most of the time, on average, um, partisan news has smaller effects than one, one might imagine. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And there are ways in which that actually that could have a, a, some, some big effects. But we might want to think about those more creatively. and So that's, I think, where our future research is directed. In. So some of those might be thinking about, how does partisan news coverage get amplified through mainstream coverage, which reaches more people? Also, we've got these news seekers, and they are paying attention, and they are forming attitudes and opinions about why Ukraine is occurring. And they're more likely to contact their representatives and so forth. Matt Levendusky has a nice uh, book about this, Um, also a fellow goldsmith uh, prize winner. I'll leave it. Leave it at that. There's. There's still a lot more work to be done. Okay. I'll to grab the, the um clicker from you.
5: Kevin. Oh. Thank you. How <laughs> oh, we switched. to the. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just thought I got it.
1: Sorry. Oh you do need the keyboard, after all. <laughs> Perfect. Okay.
5: Well, thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here to share a little bit about the research that I've been doing on partisan news. And I think as I uh, talk through this, I think you'll see some overlaps and some moments of difference between um, the work that Kevin and Martin have done and the work that I've been doing on this topic. Um, My overarching goal is, can we identify some of the problems and some of the benefits of having news media and partisan news media in particular as part of our democratic system? And then, if there are problematic aspects, are there ways in which we can address some of those problematic aspects? So to start with, what I'd like to do today is go through three different questions. Uh, It seems like having three points is just the theme. Okay, so first question is, what influences where the public turns for news. So when we face a media environment with so many rich choices, how is the public discriminating amongst all of these choices to decide where they want to turn for news and information? The second is why does the public make specific news choices? So why do we see patterns of partisan news consumption? And then third, what is the effect of where the public turns for news? So, for the first question, what influences where the public turns for news? The theoretical anchor that I really turn to for this research is the idea of selective exposure, which is nothing new like the active audience. This uh, was with us in the 1940s and 1950s, and it's the idea that people are motivated to select information that matches what they believe and to avoid information that contradicts what they believe. And it's just this incredibly rich, wonderful research topic because you get to go back to psychology journals from the 1960s and read all of these wonderful articles where they're looking at selective exposure. And when you do that, you learn that there's a history of tremendously conflicting research findings about selective exposure. So you have some articles that conclude selective exposure happens all the time. People have a psychological inclination to look for like-minded information. And you get other pieces where the concluding paragraph is, there is absolutely no evidence of selective exposure. This concept shouldn't be on the books any longer. And as I was plowing through all this research, the thing that is even more interesting than reading that in the 1960s is to read the contemporary literature within the past 10 years that is no less divided than the literature from the 1960s, with some folks concluding very boldly, selective exposure is not happening, including from political science and others concluding that, in fact, it is very apparent in our
6: media environment today. Could you test scholars to see whether those who believe in it only read articles I love it. I would love to do that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a grant application there. Huh? I really like it.
7: <laughs> our academic well, self-deceiving I like to explore. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: possibly you could deduce it into this. Pardon? Yes, perhaps. Yes,
5: I like it. Um, The way that I approached this really conflicting literature um, was first to look at what, what could we do sorting through all this? Why could we have people reading the same literature and reaching totally opposite conclusions? And the first thing that I noticed is all that literature on selective exposure draws from so many different topics. So some of them are about politics, and some of them are about things like your makeup brand and car advertisements. And if you sort through it and put it in two piles, literature on politics and selective exposure versus literature on everything else and selective exposure, the literature on politics and selective exposure is far more supportive of the idea that there's something about our partisan predispositions that motivates our information selection. And I think there are a variety of reasons that that could be the case. I would suggest that partisanship is just something so close to people's self-identity, not everyone, but for some people. And that closeness to their self-identity then leads them to use that as a rationale for picking information whether consciously or not. And the second thing is that I really think the type of exposure matters. So some studies would give people just a series of options and see what they pick, but they only were exposed at one point in time, where I think it's really worth our while to think about habitual exposure patterns. What happens when people turn it, tune into the same outlet day in and day out versus just a one-time look at a piece of information. And so based on this background, I was fortunate to work on the National Annenberg Election Survey. And for the data that I'll share with you in a moment, we had data from over 30,000 randomly selected Americans who provided information about what newspapers they read, what talk radio programs they listened to, what websites they accessed, and what cable news programs they watched. And um, I had the joyous task of sorting through the open-ended data for all of these people and categorizing them into left and right-leaning outlets and some that were in the middle, or you couldn't make a clear ideological determination for which way it leaned. So after sorting through all of these um, fun data, uh, later on the survey, people were also asked to identify their partisanship or their ideological leanings. And so it was possible to say, what's the probability that people habitually turn to MSNBC or Fox News? And so the next charts that I'm going to show you are going to illustrate what's the probability that a conservative Republican or a liberal Democrat looks at different different media sources. And so for each of these charts, there's going to be red bars and blue bars. The red bars are for conservative Republicans. Blue bars are for liberal Democrats. And we'll go through each media type. So on the side is here the probability of reading a newspaper.
1: Yeah. Clarification. clarification. Yeah. Conservatives and Republicans or
5: conservative Republicans? Um, great call. So the technical way of saying this is I had a measure of ideology and partisanship combined. This is plus or minus one standard deviation from the mean. Non-technical way would be these are people that lean a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right. If I had done these charts for the most extreme conservative Republicans and the most extreme liberal Democrats, the patterns would be even more persuasive than they are in the charts that I'm showing you now
4: about conservative
5: democrats or those um the correlation between ideology and partisanship is now much much stronger than it once was so there are far fewer conservative democrats and liberal republicans unfortunately than they once are than they once were um in some surveys when i'm looking at both measures they're so highly correlated that you can't include both in models so it's crazy Uh, So here are the results of looking at the probability of reading a newspaper, and this is taking into account demographics and a lot of political orientations like political knowledge and other media Mm -hmm. use patterns. And here on the side you'll see that conservative Republicans were more likely to read a Republican endorsing newspaper, and by that I mean one that made a Republican presidential endorsement in comparison to liberal Democrats, and the exact opposite pattern is here for those reading Democrat endorsing newspapers, liberal Democrats far more likely than conservative Republicans. So this is newspapers. This next chart is looking at the probability of listening to talk radio. And clearly, conservative Republicans far more likely to listen to conservative radio compared to liberal Democrats. Exactly the opposite pattern for listening to liberal radio. And this pattern, I will tell you now, is going to start to be a very, very familiar one. So next, we have the probability of watching cable news, Fox News viewers, Dominate that the dominant uh, ideological and partisan leaning for Fox News viewers are conservative Republicans. Exactly the opposite for CNN or MSNBC. Yeah. How
7: do you code NPR as liberal do they count in your radio? Really,
5: uh, really good question. I did count NPR as a liberal leaning source because of the controversy about counting it as a liberal leaning source. However, I replicated it without NPR, and the same pattern still holds true. My rationale for including it as a left-leaning source is um, there have been a few content analyses that compare NPR to other radio programs, and it does appear that at least some of the shows on NPR are more left-leaning. So that's my basis. It holds either way. Totally fair question. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the,
4: the, the newspaper,
5: the newspaper Carly, I would agree that that is a component of it. And the newspaper results are also a little bit more ambiguous because if you have a town that consists mainly of Republicans, it's in the newspaper's interest to endorse a Republican, which is less supportive of selective exposure and more supportive of a newspaper that's appropriately tailoring its product. So there is a reason to be really interested in those newspaper results because of that facet of it. Yeah. Where do you
7: place
5: the Huffington Post? Huffington Post, I considered it to be a liberal website.
0: CNN, you said decided is
5: decidedly liberal as well. Yeah, so uh, another controversial one, results hold if I don't put CNN there and only look at MSNBC. Um, the basis for including it here with MSNBC is there have been content analyses suggesting that its coverage is similar to MSNBC on things like global warming and Iraq. And so on the basis of those content analyses, I categorized it in the same way as MSNBC. And the patterns actually are not that dissimilar between CNN and MSNBC. So... For that reason, uh, I categorized it in that way. And I should mention, too, if we if we did that study just today, m- maybe things would be a little bit different, because CNN has repositioned in some ways over the past few years. This is
1: 2008?
5: This is 2004 for this one. 2004.
1: Yeah. yeah. On
5: okay. um, this one, I have replicated it with 2008 data, and it's similar, but I would be but really curious to see 2012, yeah. because I think maybe those patterns have shifted a little bit. In
1: 2004, MSNBC mm-hmm. wasn't nearly as no, self-identified as liberal. It's not as, so, an, and not as popular. So this is, in a way, right and center as opposed to right and left.
5: Potentially. I mean, there are some content analyses from that era suggesting that there are differences between Central the left. two. It's really hard to know where to put center, as you have dealt with in your work as well. So tricky to make some of those calls. Yeah. I think the overarching pattern, though, is that we definitely see partisan differences in terms of where people are turning for news and information, where they routinely say they go. Um, Next one, same pattern, but for political websites, you see the same sort of thing if you look at whether people are tuning in to the Republican and the Democratic national conventions. I see the same sort of pattern if I don't use uh, data from a survey, but instead use Nielsen data. Nielsen data is a little bit tricky because they never tell you the partisanship of the people who are answering the Nielsen surveys, but you can see that those people who are dominant Fox News viewers aren't always switching over to MSNBC or they show some preferential behavior in favor of Fox News over other outlets, for example. Okay, so the question before about newspapers was a perfect question because it results in do people actually prefer like-minded news and information? It could be that they live in a town of Republicans, the newspaper is Republicans, so they just end up encountering these things. But really, if they had their druthers, they would prefer to encounter really rich and varied information, and they wouldn't be so drawn toward like-minded information. And so the question is, can we uh, find out whether people are motivated to pick like-minded information? And so I designed a study that I call the magazine study. And it's one of my favorite studies, so I'm really excited to share this one with you. So, Essentially what we did for the magazine study is we partnered with another group who was doing some experimentation, and they were nice enough to let us uh, interfere a little bit with their study toward the beginning. And so people would show up for the other study, and we would have a research assistant come out and say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, Um, we're running a little bit late. Would you mind waiting in the waiting room for maybe five or ten minutes? And of course everyone said yes, no problem at all. And it was in a library not unlike this one. And we purposefully had it set up this way. And on a table like this one next (laughs) to them, lo and behold, there were some magazines there that ranged on the political spectrum from left to right. And even more fun, I had an undergraduate research assistant who was sitting probably where we are. And he appeared to be just deeply engaged in his studies. But in fact, what he was doing was watching what magazines the person picked up and recording what they were doing. So that happened, then the person was asked to go in, completed the other study, at the end of the other study, because I was really interested in these habitual patterns, um, the research assistant would say, oh, thank you so much for participating, as a token of our gratitude, we'd love to give you a free magazine subscription, same magazines would show up again, and then we actually did buy them a magazine subscription for the next year. And so we had two data points there, both the browsing behavior in the waiting room and the subscription data to find out when people have the same choices, do they elect magazines that conform to their political viewpoints? And we find that that is the case in both instances. You Here's the chart only political for subscription. Magazines. Pardon? Only, political
6: magazines. only
5: political, but they had full option not to look at any of them at all. So some people didn't. They played on their phone the whole time, for example. You
6: didn't give an entertainment option. We so. did not give I, an entertainment I the, option. I go to the dentist, and it's my only opportunity to read Cosmo
5: would be a wonderful extension of the study that would overlap in some ways with some of the work that you have done so a nice extension of that but we did only give political magazines but no one was forced to do so and some people also opted out of a subscription as well so what uh, percentage
1: didn't read anything
5: i don't remember off the top of my head i want to I don't remember off the top of my head. Happy to look it up, though, and let you know. It wasn't an overwhelming, it wasn't a majority of people that opted out. Most people were looking at the magazine, yeah. yeah.
4: You, you think people would be surprised to find The Nation and the, new republic, uh, the nation and, uh, National Review in the same waiting room? But
5: mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> um, when we disclosed to people then, because of course IRB requirements, we had to tell them like, oh, we were actually watching you in the waiting room, and of course, we were the super creepy people that. I can see my
1: actually does have both of them. Yeah, oh,
5: see, the, there the, we the, go.
1: But once a year, I get. <laughs> I see a bunch of them, yeah.
5: And they were they were very surprised, so I don't think they yeah. suspected that this was happening in any way. Um, happily, everyone agreed to give us their data, but that so they Measure weren't just. a degree of weren't.
6: ideological distance by gradating the magazines with the left and right. I mean, yeah, um, love that idea. We did where not did the do new that.
5: Um, I would have to go back, but what we did first was we did a a study where we um, had people rate the magazines. So before we even did this whole thing, we showed them the magazines, a separate group of people, and had them rate the magazines as which way they leaned ideologically so that we we had many more magazines than the ones we ended up using so that we could make sure that people were able to identify the leaning and that it was consistently identified as left or right. So we did do that pre-work to make sure that these weren't ambiguous signals for the people that were participating in it. Yeah. OK, so subscri- subscriptions are now very, very familiar pattern. Um, conservative Republicans were more likely to choose the conservative magazine. Liberal Democrats more likely to choose the liberal magazine from the waiting room. So my big point for this one, what influences where the public turns for news? Partisanship. It's not an end-all, be-all, it's not a perfect predictor of where people turn for news and information, but it is a significant predictor throughout all of these different media types. There's something about our political identities that affects where we turn for news. So my next question is, why does the public make these news traces? And uh, there's a really interesting research area on the hostile media effect that I think holds a key for why some of this happens. And so the hostile media effect asks how do we decide whether a media outlet is biased or not and concludes that it really depends who you are whether you perceive bias in a media outlet or not. And so the basic argument of the hostile media phenomenon, and this started by Valone et al. Uh, in a 1979 article, is they said if we got an article that was putatively neutral, and I say putatively very strategically because it would, it's a very challenging endeavor to find what this article is, but the argument is If we found it, what would happen is that Democrats would perceive that article as favoring Republicans. And Republicans would perceive that very same article as favoring Democrats. So that neutral media coverage is, in fact, perceived to be hostile by people on both sides of the political spectrum. Now, the interesting part about this is, of course, many media outlets out there are not neutral and down the middle, and partisan news that we've been talking about this whole time has a predictable slant. So this research has been extended to look at the relative hostile media effect, which is when you have media that actually have a slant, how might people respond? And you can look at either a Democratic leaning article or outlet or a Republican leaning article or outlet, and here's what you find. Republicans will look at that Democratic leaning article and see tremendous amounts of bias. they will be overcome with how biased that article is. Someone who's nonpartisan might look at that same article and say, yeah, it's a little bit in favor of Democrats. But a Democrat may, in fact, look at that article and see something that is neutral and nonpartisan and finally covering the news in a balanced way. Now, I don't mean to suggest that this happens all of the time. Of course, there are Rush Limbaugh episodes and Rachel Maddow episodes that are so clearly biased that no matter where you are in the political spectrum, you are going to say, that leans in favor of one side or the other. But what I do mean to suggest is that there are differences, there are relative differences between Democrats and Republicans in how they assess bias, and they're very quick to assess bias against them and much more reticent to assess bias that is in their favor. So in looking at this, I was very curious about how people develop perceptions of bias of outlets like CNN or Fox News and who are these people that really judge these outlets as politically biased. And so I'm switching up the chart just a little bit here. So we're looking at those with high and low levels of political knowledge. And now we're looking at the probability of believing that CNN has a liberal bias. And there are two factors that consistently predict seeing an outlet as biased. One, you're politically knowledgeable. So this is not something that happens among people that really don't know what's happening in the political world. But two, you hold the opposite partisanship. It's very easy to say that outlet is biased against me, And you find the behavior of saying that outlet is biased in my favor to be far less common. So here it's conservative Republicans that are highly knowledgeable, that are most apt to see CNN as politically biased, and exactly the opposite chart, exactly the opposite chart for Fox News. For Fox News, it's the politically knowledgeable liberal Democrats that are more likely to see Fox News as politically biased in favor of conservatives. So my argument for you is, why does the public make specific news choices? Is that informed partisans really judge the political world through a partisan lens. And when they're looking at the media landscape, they see hostile media that they don't want to look at. And then they see this maybe neutral-ish media that they wouldn't call that as being maybe somewhat hostile. But like-minded media seems far more palatable. And so they select it.
1: Yeah? How do you treat
5: Love that question. So independent leaners um, are a really interesting category, and I end up collapsing them with weak partisans. Why do I do this? Because I have pulled them out and looked at them separately, and they are so much like weak partisans in the data that I've analyzed. In some instances, they even display more selective exposure behavior than weak partisans. So people that are looking at this, treating leaners just as independents. Or treating them as as weaker than weak partisans, I think sometimes are not totally seeing how the spectrum is. So working they would out. be
1: included in those bars, then. Correct. Be, if you're talking about a standard deviation either side, that's correct, now. correct. Okay.
5: Yes. Um, and I've done I've parsed them out in a variety of different ways uh, to make sure that I got those folks, but. It's a really interesting trend because some people argue that, oh, the percentage of people identifying as independents is increasing, therefore partisan news use must not be so much of a factor because there are so many independents out there. But many, many independents, as soon as you ask them, do you lean toward Democrats or Republicans, in fact have a partisan leaning, and at least in the data I've analyzed, behave like weak partisans. Okay. Final one is, what is the effect of where the public turns for news? Can I ask you a question? How
6: would you control for... Let me pose the problem this way. If I could sit and go through a day's worth of Fox News and go through a day's worth of CNN Mm -hmm. and show you that by characteristics you and I would agree are factual or objective, that there was higher likelihood of incorrect information being presented by Fox, would I be politically biased systematically to prefer not to watch Fox when my concern is about factuality? How would your testing recognize me as distinct from someone who you're labeling as politically biased? If my bias was for truth. Right? In an imperfect world, less truth. Well, then, well let's be, you, let's you're, you're defining it very narrowly. Of course, but I'm, try, I'm trying
1: factual to. factual items where you can. Yeah, yeah. You know, let's, okay. let's
6: try to do just that. And I mean, the then we could do it in other I'm trying to get at this idea that there's something called partisanship. Mm-hmm. That is the inherent defining characteristic here. I think there's something circular going on. I think that there may be other qualities operating in the mind of viewers that cause selection to go on here. And part of it may be an understanding of factuality. I don't think it's retreating into an observer's neutrality about factuality. If, you know, if you if you I, I don't know, Benghazi is a good example. We can go through the facts. We Look at creationism versus Darwinism. We can go through the data, and you know, a social scientist who says, Well, the 32% of Americans actually believe the creation story, so we have to stand in between these two, is going to leave someone like me rather cool to the social scientist. And so I'm trying to get at this idea that there's something about there's something other than partisanship that's playing here, and I don't know how you test for it in the, in the models you.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea because for what you're suggesting to um, contradict the idea of partisanship, you have to propose two things, right? One, you have to propose that factuality is different among these outlets. And then two, you have to propose that it's correlated with partisanship mm-hmm. radiology. ideology. And um, I think those claims are extremely controversial, and we definitely do not have the evidence to say those things at this point. I don't know
6: if you tested for it, that's why I don't know. It
5: has not been tested for, because to come up with a way to sort out the facts becomes unbelievably challenging to come up with what those metrics would be in a way that both the left and the right would even agree on that basic component of it, other than the most obvious things that are essentially not terribly interesting. Can I just follow
0: up on that, though? Because I actually recently read a study that did Uh a poll that tested people with Basic level oh, facts, I I and the one you're found about. That Fox said News that both MSNBC and yeah. Fox yeah. News can predict, like you know, indicate facts as well as people with no news content. So yeah. how do you like, you know, how do you bring that into the context of, of what you're doing? The, yeah. the question that you were asking.
5: Fantastic, and I love this. And you actually have a part of your book that gets at studies like this. So maybe I should also bring you into this as well. Go ahead. Um, I'll kick it over to you to give your response as well. Um, Those sorts of surveys is very interesting because you have to look very carefully at the universe of facts that are drawn upon in there, and then you have to look at what are the attributes of the people that then were attracted to those channels. So it's not over time. Many of the ones, the one that you're talking about, I think I have seen recently, and it's just one cross-section. So it's just looking at one point in time, are people watching different outlets correlated with whatever knowledge markers that they might happen to have? And so it's not clear what way the causal error goes. It could be that people who are less informed are turning to those channels, in which case maybe it had a tremendous improvement in terms of how much they knew if we had the pre-wave score. Maybe they actually learned a ton from those. So those sorts of studies are very, very challenging to parse out what is actually happening. And I'll kick it over to you to add more because I know you have a section of this in your book. Yeah,
3: I mean, I'll just <clears throat> what I, what I'll add to that is actually a lot of those studies kind of cherry-pick in a way that if you the sort of if you look at Pew has lots of data on this and if you you look at it a little more systematically what you find is that people who tune into Fox News and people who tune into MSNBC actually tend to be more politically knowledgeable on average I mean, they know more about true facts that we can agree that's a fact about politics they actually are better at answering those questions than than your average person you find examples of true facts so so they would be like you know god created so. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> no, no. The, so, 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 no. Uh, this, this would be why I, I think we should define. What yeah. You mean by so, uh, so political, <laughs> political facts. So, so political facts. So, you know, how many years is a senator uh, term of office? Um, very basic things that that you know we could agree should be in a textbook. Um, now, what I would say is that those aren't the effects of tuning into those shows. I think that people who are interested in politics know more about it and they happen to watch those shows. So, I think that. The problem with those surveys is we, we really can't tell what the effects of watching those shows are. Now, let me just jump in on, on your question about, about how do we think about facts. So what's interesting to me is like the um, Ross Malone and uh, Leaper studies, they were really trying to get at this. Like, what if we give people facts about, you know, that... Yeah, really yeah exactly. <laughs> and what they find is that that well, that's
1: what that study was it was about. Well, there's that one, and the
3: 1979 one, I think, was death penalty and
5: oh, that's a, that's the biased discrimination yeah, yeah. one. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. a bias. 82,
3: maybe. Anyway, what what I find interesting is that the notion that, and I don't have a really good answer to this, but I I, I think you're right. We could we could probably there are probably some facts that we could uh, that we could agree on in the scope of how science works, right? This is a working hypothesis. There's not any, not enough evidence. You know, is, is the universe 14 billion years old or 11 billion years old? We can disagree about that. Well, we, we can tell you it's not 4,000 years old. Right,
6: Barack Obama as a candidate. Right? right, exactly. I mean, there are, right, there are claims that are prevalent in some of these broadcast outlets that would be a perfectly good example of where I don't think anybody outside their networks would consider the facts. Right. I
3: mean, it's a what I'm going to posit is, what's interesting is that people use these sort of source cues as indicative of how much weight they should put on a fact. Um, and the question is, is that, is that a good thing? I mean, that might be a pretty good thing. I mean, if I, if I read something in the journal Nature, I'd probably more likely believe it if I read it in the Inquirer. Um, so that's number one. Number two, and I'm like hijacking your thing, but... In, <laughs> Number two is, there's actually so some good work know, by... The inquirer, the inquirer has
1: better fact checks. Oh, the Inquirer has better fact checks. Because they're, they really have, right. they're more likely
3: to be sued. Really <laughs> right. yeah. So maybe I should... Wrong uh, example. I'm just messing up all over here. But there's actually some interesting work by some Yale psychologists where they actually paid people if they gave them the right answer. And what they found is they could actually... that Yeah. They actually... People were less likely to say stuff like Barack Obama a Kenyan right. if you actually paid them. So point is some of this, yeah. So some of this is people are just like
5: giving
6: responses. I just they, don't like they Barack say, Obama. So
3: yeah, exactly.
5: <laughs> the only other thing I might add to that is in, and I'm going to turn to this in just a second, but in a series of panel surveys, I was looking at whether or not using like-minded partisan media predicted political knowledge of <laughs> basic political facts upon which we would all agree, like candidates' biography and background, or where they stood on an issue, on something that they had been very blatant about. And in no instance uh, did I find, although it could be a factor of the question, but in no instance did I find that watching partisan media reduced levels of political knowledge. Um, So for those basic political facts, looking at panel data over time, where I had this pre and post, I did not find evidence of that. Again, artifact of the questions,
7: though. Can I just ask a question on that? Please. So are you saying that you didn't find anybody, to use the example here, that now does believe that Barack Obama, Obama was born? in Kenya? that's the kind of thing you should It was
5: not through? that sort of a question that I was looking at. It was more basic, more things that would be just incontrovertible, totally a fact. We wouldn't get or a group that's Trump. like, no, that's not right. right. Exactly correct. So if we were to look at more <clears throat> controversial moments, of political knowledge, I think we would find differences. Uh, I suspect we would, yeah. So the effect, the way that I was looking at the effect um, in the data that I had was I had a series of four different panel surveys. So what I was able to analyze is polarization at time two. If we control for how polarized people were at time one, can we learn anything about how polarized people were at time two based on how much partisan media use they had beforehand so it's a more conservative test than just looking at a snapshot like the survey you were mentioning because I'm controlling for how polarized they were before and here you can get a sense of um, whether or not polarization is a result of partisan media use or whether partisan media use contributes to political polarization so doing these sorts of panel surveys the results that I find um, first consistently I find across these panel surveys that people who are watching like-minded partisan media are more politically polarized. And what I mean by political polarization is they feel more favorably toward candidates of their own party and feel less favorably toward candidates of the opposition. Now, others have replicated this in a variety of different ways. They find that people are more polarized on issue positions resulting from like-minded partisan media use. They find that they are more uh, favorable toward their own ideological leaning compared to those who aren't engaged in this behavior. So I find the evidence that uh, partisan news use, like-minded partisan news use, can contribute to political polarization to be quite persuasive. And on the one hand, this is really terrible news because polarization... When you say
6: contributes to polarization, when I think of uh, Fox or MSNBC, I'm thinking of a tiny fragment of the voting Mm -hmm. population. Mm -hmm. And they enter, I would think, the Fox or MSNBC world, already Polarized right. by your standards. So Correct. So the question is, what's is What's the me- – they become more polarized? What does it mean to become more polarized? And what does that mean for the vast audience that doesn't watch
2: either?
5: Yeah, so this is looking at those people who do watch that, which, yeah. again, it's a fraction of the population, Small an important fraction. fraction of the population. Mm-hmm. But it's not just cable news. I've looked at this for newspaper exposure, for internet exposure, for talk radio exposure. Now, all of those may Talk maybe radio have,
6: is a very big one. The 90% who aren't listening to it, it may not be. But yeah, I get it. it's it's big compared to these audiences that are one percent or less. But yeah, the but, I, but again, is I mean mm-hmm. we have to understand what it, what it means to be big. I mean, in most other settings, 10%. I mean in pharmaceuticals, well it's it, big. I mean it's bigger than 10%. It's pre- bigger than 10%. 10%. It is actually. If bad. you and I run for high school student body president, I get 10% of the vote. I'm not going to be the big man on campus. I mean, there's a context. I'm, I'm trying to understand something here about what it is that looking at these one percent categories is telling us about polarization in the larger polity, which mm-hmm. seems to be a phenomenon that's going that that is observable, and what the what the hooks are between the two. I'm, and I don't know if you're going to address that or. I'm, No,
5: no, a couple of different things. So first, according to these panel surveys, I find exactly the phenomenon which you're describing, which is polarization feeds into partisan media exposure. People who are already polarized are more likely to go to partisan media. But I also find the opposite, that those who are going to partisan media outlets then in turn become more politically polarized. Now, are there some who have gone there who have reached the extremes? They can't be polarized any further. (laughs) Of course. But there are also people that are a little bit more modest or people that are just tuning in without very strong inclinations. And my evidence does show that they form more polarized political views in the post-wave of those surveys when they're watching like-minded media than when they're not. Second question is how big of an audience is this? And another really important and interesting question because I don't believe that we could ever say this is the number, the size of the audience. Mm -hmm. That is so contextual. A big thing happens. And then all of a sudden, everyone is tuning into these channels. A look at the uh, RNC and DNC in 2012. Huge audience ratings. And MSNBC and Fox are huge ratings winners.
4: Now, so wait, let's be
6: clear about what huge is. Uh, the mm-hmm. households with televisions, if we're going to use just television shows, which is more than the households with cable access, which is what we have controlled for these two channels. Mm-hmm. And further, not even all cable systems carry these two. We uh, Wouldn't carry both. No, they the Do end they end also, end all follow them? End yeah. Okay. So when has one of these channels sustained a 24 hour 24 or even a peak evening uh, share that was twenty uh, twenty or better?
5: MSNBC beat national network news during the DNC. You no know,
6: National Network News is a five or six. It's not I mean I'm talking when has it ever beaten an NFL Monday night football game? It never has. I'm serious. I mean, I'm trying to. Talk yeah, about but you a lot. look
5: at like presidential debates. Seventy-two million people, households yeah, tuning in. That's all amazing.
6: Of, like, That's the
5: vice presidential Congress, debate, in 20, and 2008.
4: Divided, and they divided different ways. In fact, it, I, I, I don't have the exact numbers in my head, but, right. but the numbers. Yes, it was available universally on broadcast and cable. Um, in some cases, um, I think. I think. I think in the Republican case, the Republican. Uh, Fox News mm-hmm. will generally beat the broadcast networks uh, for one reason: they are covering the bulk of it mm-hmm. as opposed to an hour mm-hmm. at the end. So you, you get you get a, a longer tune-in and a thinner. So if you compare the same half hour of I, I broadcast, I will. think they no, I think they still win. I think I think the cable still win. Uh, whereas.
5: there are kind of a couple ways to handle an argument like that. One is to say, well, let's just look at the raw numbers and compare it to Monday night football, for example. And there, maybe Monday night football or the Super Bowl is going to come out on top. But we can still say that the proportion that is tuning in to some of these important political events is important. So that's making the argument just on the terms of how many people, just the numbers. But there's another way to address an argument like this, which is saying, who are those people who tune in? Are these the most politically knowledgeable, the most likely to turn out to vote, the most likely to then affect our political world? And I would definitely make that argument. It's not the people who and never so tune into the
6: news. not—I don't do what you do. Mm-hmm. I still would want to walk through the numbers here mm-hmm. very carefully yeah. to see what these multipliers look like. Yeah. I'm still not persuaded that you aren't looking at the you know the long tails here of a. Of Curve. and I haven't. I've, I've heard some claims about how those tails impact the curve moving up right. the slope, mm-hmm. but I have that data. I haven't seen yet, so I'm just trying to. Yeah, yeah. So it's I actually, actually think, in
1: some respects, this becomes the critical question. Mm-hmm. You know, in the when we think about the you know, big picture purpose of the seminar. Um, but I, I think maybe we should table it. Let you finish your presentation, mm-hmm. and then we're going to go back to. I think we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about how and why and whether. It, uh, there, it, what that critical threshold looks like and how do we think about it? Yeah. Because um, otherwise we're going to run out of time before you okay. finish.
5: Thank you. Okay, <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, so in the data set, I find statistically significant evidence of increased levels of polarization. Before, though, we say that partisan news overall is just terrible news. Um, if I were to ask at the beginning of this, what is a what are the criteria that make a vibrant democracy? People here would definitely have said something about political participation. And doing the same sort of analysis, I find that rates of participation are significantly higher among those who are looking at partisan news use. They're more likely to persuade others to vote. They're more likely to get involved in campaigns. And so if we really wanted a democracy where people are politically engaged, I would argue that partisan news use is not such a bad way to try to spark political participation. And another outcome that I've analyzed has been looking at issues seen as important. So when people are using like-minded news media sources, does it fragment what issues people consider to be the most important? And have found evidence that that is in fact the case, that when people are watching right and left-leaning outlets and they cover different issues, then people watching those outlets then adopt different issues as being most important. And so from a broader democratic angle, the question is, as people see different issues as most important, How do we reach consensus? How do we allocate fixed resources? All of those questions arise. So my argument in terms of the effect is that there are both democratically encouraging and discouraging effects, and partisan news media use as the norm, I would argue, would be disconcerting because of the effects that it has. So in conclusion, I would say first, selective exposure to partisan news exists, and it is politically consequential. My second argument is that selective exposure is but one of several ways in which we make decisions about incoming messages. So it's not just, do I expose myself or not? It's also, how critically do I engage with information that counters my predispositions? Uh, How much do I retain from that information that comes into play? And then I think that the next really big question, and what I've been doing most recently in my research, is whether, uh, and if so, how, we can be more even-handed. If we are biased information processors in terms of exposure and retention and processing, what can we do ourselves to try to encourage ourselves to be more even-handed and charitable to views unlike their own? So thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, both of you. Okay, so uh, you know, having sort of forcibly tabled that question, I want to just. <laughs> Take advantage of the moderator's prerogative and rip it back up because I think, uh, uh, you know, you, uh, uh, Kevin, alluded to Matt Ledesky's, uh book, and really the big argument that he makes is sort of Constantin argument that yes, it's a relatively small number of people, but they're the critical ones because they're the ones who are driving politics and policy. So, um, and when we get to the bigger picture question that we're talking about in this workshop. It's really how does this matter for democracy and some, by some through some mechanism you have to get from the people that are being polarized to uh, outcomes being somehow su- a critical mass sufficient in some way. Um, Richard, who I, I don't know if he's coming back, but you know, he was uh, focusing on, you know, talk to me about the numbers, but I think um, uh at least Levandusky's argument, would be that that's not the way to think about Mm -hmm. it. So uh, I want to just sort of push on it a little more. Um, In particular, I guess, in a way, I saw this as in contrast with with your argument a little bit more directly, although the way you were um, presenting it in your talk, it it kind of hits strikes directly at yours as well, Mm -hmm. even
3: though I didn't take it as much from the book, I guess. um, So how would you think about that question? So so the way I think about it is I... I sort of divide these into two broad categories. One, we can think about the effects of partisan news in terms of their direct effects. How do they directly affect people? And I think the only way, that, at least the way I approach it, is by thinking, I think we have to construct, you know, let's use a $10,000 $10, word, the counterfactual. So what, what would these people do, if the people who are tuning in to, to, to Fox and MSNBC, what would they have done had they not done that? And one possibility is um, that the reason why they're watching Fox News or MSNBC during an election is because they've already made their decision. They're going to vote for Romney or they're going to vote for Obama. And so tuning into a like-minded network is more of a cheerleading for them. And so in that sense, you know, we would conclude maybe it it might make them more likely to vote. It might make them... um, more excited about the, you know, the election or whatnot, but it might not change your attitude. So that's what I would say in terms of direct effects. But where Lev work goes um, is, uh, I, I would put in the category of indirect effects. So here what you have is, it's true, maybe the numbers are small, but if those small numbers of people are more likely to pick up their phone and, or their, go to their email and email their congressperson, they might actually influence the process. I'd also add to it that we have to keep in mind that the people that are included in that small group aren't just voters, it's legislators and staff members and those and if Susan Herbst's work is correct, and you know that's how legislative offices actually sort of construct what they think public opinion is, these these expo- their direct exposure, I mean that that would be a direct effect on them, I guess, in a sense. Um, and actually, there's a little bit of work. I mean, uh, Josh Clinton has a paper. Um, I have a paper with uh, Martin and, and a few other people where we actually used the, the rollout of Fox News, which was it's not really a natural experiment, but it, it sort of unrolled in a haphazard fashion. And what, what we find is that both Democrats and Republicans in Fox News districts were more likely to vote Republican um, in the late 1990s. So that's, that's evidence that these... I mean, I think these shows, despite having small audiences can affect the political process. But as social scientists, I think we just have to be careful in saying what's doing what. Right? That's how I think about
5: it. Yeah, I would go two directions with it. One is um, I am not persuaded that the audience is so small as to be insignificant. this is like the same sort of question of is it statistically significant or substantively significant. And you have to decide. it's not a question I could show you a formula and say, oh look, that audience is significant. We have so much research on things like The Daily Show where the audience for that is unbelievably small. So if you think The Daily Show is important, you should be very concerned about partisan news media. So I think you just have to think about, look at the numbers, look at how many people are watching these things. And don't just look at one night's metrics for O'Reilly Look at who tunes into it over the course of a month. Look at how many people spend at least six minutes with it. I, I don't think that we're talking about small numbers. So that would be my first argument. And then second, I, I do buy what Lewandowski is uh, arguing in some of his work, which is that this is a really important group. These are the people that are the movers and shakers. The probability of the effects that they can have on their networks around them is just tremendous. So I find this to be... Uh, both numbers as they are, and the indirect effects to be worth our attention.
7: Well, I mean, I've seen a number somewhere, but i wouldn't hazard to quote it. But the number of people who, who are more partisan are also more likely to vote. Mm-hmm. So to a huge degree. To, to your point, I mean, just from a sure probability of impact on the, the process at the local level, mm-hmm. uh, it's higher.
5: Yeah, and in primaries. They're far more likely to turn out in a primary. Who determines the candidates? Whether it's a more moderate or a more extreme candidate,
0: are the more likely to run for office. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
3: Yeah. The thing here that I, that sort of I've been toying around with is we have to be we have to be careful not to get too carried away too, which is that some of these effects, uh, polarization effects in particular, you can also see uh, through mainstream news coverage. Now. Um, and that's because mainstream news coverage actually does exactly what we want objective reporting to do. Today, Republicans said this and Democrats said that. And the audience, if they're Republicans or Democrats, say, well, by golly, I believe what they just said about Republicans, and now I'm ticked off because they didn't just say that. Um, so, you know, I think partisans are more likely to vote because they're more likely to vote. And so then the question is, is are, are the media actually doing something to, to change their behavior? Um, and I think, I think the answer is, of course, to some extent, right? So the question is, to what extent? And how much of it is is it what the media is doing, and how much of it is what political elites are doing? And my hunch would be a lot of this is driven by, by political elites. So, you know, Fox News needs content, MSNBC needs content. They don't just do it on their own. They're just a channel. Mm -hmm.
4: Now, they both make choices, of course, about what's important. I mean, so going back to the argument about facts, you know, even, you know, both MSNBC and Fox will agree that Ambassador Stevens died in Benghazi, however you then characterize it further than that. Fox. is an issue, and MSNBC probably does the same in, in some other respects, um, having rambled there, let, them, let, them, let me throw in one other thing, uh, also time back to, uh, to just having finished the first pass through, thinking uh, fast and slow, I'm just wondering if this really applies more to just an availability, because these networks, all of them, are repeating circuits. <laughs> really holistic, the way he describes it in there, more than facts, or more than really ideology, even.
5: Well, on I the, have no idea. Uh, on the first part of that, um, it is true that the networks cover different aspects of any situation quite differently. Um, we did an analysis looking at how both networks covered Iraq, and how did they talk about the surge, and the probability of success, and whether things were going well or going poorly and they cover them very differently, and attitudes of people who are watching those programs, controlling for prior attitudes, um, do go in those directions. Mm -hmm. So I think there's empirical evidence of what you're suggesting. Um, So on that Mm -hmm. point, yes. On the availability thing, I think that um, it's really interesting to look at the work across the areas in terms of what happens when people are exposed to counter-attitudinal information, because that's where I think the argument of it's just availability kind of hits, the rubber hits the road. Because if it's just availability, if I watch counterattitudinal news over and over again, I should then at some point adopt it because I heard it a million times.
4: But if, but it's not a one-time thing. It's availability over time. So if mm-hmm. I heard if I heard the congenial facts,
5: I think congenial t- is for, where it's for, easier for, for
4: a long time. Yeah, um, that affects my availability processing. Um, potentially, maybe, but,
5: potentially. Yeah. but I think that the, the issue, the part where that becomes tricky is when people are looking at those uncongenial effects, mm-hmm. just holding other things constant. If it's just availability, they should adopt them after a while, and okay. I think a lot of people would counter-argue them over and over and over mm-hmm. again, maybe because of the prior exposure they had to mm-hmm. the congenial information, but it's interesting. Some research out there finds what you find, which is that exposure to counter-attitudinal information... Results in deeper polarization and counterargument, but then there's other research that finds that exposure to counterattitudinal can moderate people's okay. views. So there's really interesting conflicts in the literature on that on that component of it.
3: My guess would be it ha- it probably has something to do with the strength of the prior going in. Agreed. So well, that's just my supposition. Yeah. So, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool Obama supporter, right? Is, mm-hmm. It's going to be very difficult for. Um, I mean. They know the Benghazi thing, and they think it's crazy, right? So it's, yeah. it's, it's at the top of their head, but they projected it so thoroughly. Yeah. Um, you,
4: you might, you might persuade them that mistakes were made.
3: So, yeah. <laughs> so the question here is more like you know, independence or sort of yeah. people who are floating voters, yeah, <clears throat> to to sort of adopt that terminology. And I think that this is where you know, sort of, um, what I find interesting about, about Talia's work and where I think. There's actually some room for overlap between what we're saying, which is these, these are the, the effects of media just in general are I don't think they're fixed in time and space, right so, so most of the time, I think what Martin and I are saying are probably most of the time, these people are not tuning in, and so the question would be, what's Benghazi, right? Um, But there are times in which people do get focused on the news. So major events happen. Things like elections happen. And I think these are the instances in which I think um, we should ask seriously, okay, in those contexts, what exactly are the news media doing? Mm -hmm. To some extent, they're cheerleading. But there might be instances in which they're also persuading and converting. But it's probably going to be. not a one-size-fits-all kind of argument. It's going to be among particular groups.
5: Oh, so, uh, I, well, I'm curious, I guess, how both of you think about your individual findings on the news production side? Like, well, how are the news makers supposed to deal with these things, especially I'm thinking about um, the idea that you brought up, Talia, that, that
0: uh,
5: depending on what you actually believe, you may actually view the product differently. So mm-hmm. a Democrat might see that whole side of it when you're actually the person in charge of but you believe that you're making partisan nonpartisan decisions in the newsroom how are you is there a way to correct for that? Great question. (laughs) Um, I think there has been work here, I can't remember the name of the article, but Don Spock and Patterson partisans as new journalists as partisan actors. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know the article. It's it's not recent at all, so it's straining the memory banks a little bit, but they were looking at how journalists make decisions and whether their partisanship affects that and found evidence that in fact it does. And so I think that it's a it's a real challenge for news producers to shake themselves out of these sorts of things. I think it's a challenge for kind of all of us to shake ourselves out of these things. And I, there are studies that are looking at um, how do we do that? Um, but I don't think there's any magic solution at this point, unfortunately. Well, you made a,
1: a, an important point about this earlier when you we of talking about the hostile media phenomenon. Yeah. The definition of neutral is different for yes. people on the left and people. Neutral means you're covering it the way I think you should be covering <laughs> it.
5: Correct.
3: That well, those it, are the facts.
1: Yeah, Because those are, those are the true facts. So in, in a world where human beings define the midpoint as consonant with their belief system, uh, maybe not you know, uh, granted there are some facts that are just objective factoids, who's the speaker of the house, right. you know, who's the chief justice of the Supreme Court, but in anything sort of below that level it's, you know, how do you square that circle, you know, how do you tell it,
3: you know, be objective um, Right, maybe, there are distal facts, right, that <clears throat> inferences, things that you can't demonstrate to be true or false, right, so you know What's the effect of the stimulus? Well, well a in a hypothetical measure. world,
1: you could demonstrate it. It's not, okay. it's not uh, theoretically impossible to answer that question. But, um, you know, the, but it's not immediate and concrete enough that, we can, that I, on the other side, can't dispute the validity yes. of your fact. Yes. So if, you know, if I could count the dollars in front of me, the, or the jobs in front of me that were saved by the stimulus, and I could see them, and you and I were both looking at them, that's different than there's some government report. Well, I don't trust the government report.
3: Right, you know. right. And there's also, it's also instances in which there aren't really very many incentives to get the accurate answer, right? So in fact, the incentives are for you to be partisan. But, but my, you know, my question to you about this is because you now um, know more about this literature about people adjusting their biases, right? So, just the sort of little bit I know about that is that people's first is it's true that people's first tendency is to like overcorrect, over-correct right? When you sort of say, "Oh, you have this bias," so people then say, "Oh, I have a bias." So,
5: um, I have found some of the literature in that to find actually, sadly, the opposite. That okay. if You tell people
3: they go back the other. They
5: if you say to them, like, "Be so alert for signs of bias. We're biased," then they even more detect biases against them and still Mm -hmm. fail to see biases in their favor. So So they then think it's really, really biased against them instead of kind of biased
3: against them. So let's take those as true, then what do journalists do, right? Because they're people too.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's exceptionally difficult. Journalism schools are premised on the idea that they can educate people to put aside their partisan predispositions and be objective. And maybe there are certain routines or styles of reporting that Get us closer to that. I think that's why we see some of this journalism that's this side, that side, not taking a position, right? Which has its own problematic consequences, well, right?
3: Because it's like if you, if, if, um, your point earlier, right? If I think that we're at a point now where you can't, you can't report the news by saying some people say there's global warming and some other people say there's not, right? I mean, the scientific community is fairly well agreed on that. So, but do you have to get to those sort of extremes where there's like. 98% of scientists agree on something, and so... Well, arguably you do, because it took a real long time to get to that point, <laughs> long
1: after there was a... The lag, I mean, that's actually a, a pretty interesting case, because the lag between the scientific consensus and the media getting to the point where they could no longer say, you know, some people say the Earth's flat, and some people say it's round, was pretty long. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of resistance to breaking outside of that mold and something that was contested, because I think what you're, I mean, getting back to what journalists are trained to do, it's when there's partisan contestation, find the neutral territory, mm-hmm. you know, which means there's some people over
2: here and yep. there's some people over there. That's, that's actually not quite the case. There was a huge amount of consensus around climate change. And when that consensus became such that it was causing uh, problems for certain business interests, enormous sums of money were unleashed to to lobby against the science, in the same way as it was done when there was uh, conclusive proof about the connection between tobacco and cancer. Uh, And the idea was to cause doubt in the argument. And once you cause doubt, you can then say the science is out. And once you can say the science is out, it changes the whole debate. So the debate, if you charted it, was actually one in which there wasn't much understanding, then there was, then there was the intervention of the Heritage Foundation of other huge spenders who changed the debate in the same way as it was done as with tobacco.
0: I think that's just
5: such a fantastic point that gives fuel to this partisan media environment too, which is just essentially questioning institutions and facts from any source. And once you get people in that frame of mind that everything is open to question, what is a fact, maybe they're lying, Becomes really challenging to well, agree there were two upon.
1: Taps, One is that, in fact, there is still a dispute. Here are some scientists that mm-hmm. are on the other side. And the other is the ones who said there's climate change are biased, and here's evidence that they you know, have access to grind. So it was really two different things going on. It wasn't just, this, you know, it was that trying to inflate the sense that there was a controversy and disputing uh, the objectivity of the scientists who were saying that there was. So of two mm-hmm. things going on.
0: Where you put um, things like infotainment um, in this world? Because I think of things like, you know, Buzzfeed, right? That started off as pure entertainment, and now they're starting to do some small amounts of actual reporting. And that a lot of young people, actually a lot of people, with a lot of the pages now get news from things like Buzzfeed or even something like Upworthy, which is not news at all and very much liberal and yet is consumed like it's fact right and it's consumed socially or like even daily show or you know colbert report like where does that fit in where you're not talking about typically people who are of polar all already polarized you know individuals necessarily they're viewing these things through often social media networks like how does that fit in with their exposure and kind of how they're understanding these
3: so I mean, I think that I actually have a student who's hopefully will be writing a dissertation on this. Um, um, I I think that um, social media opens up some interesting opportunities for people to be, um, in a sense, uh, accidentally treated to stuff that they normally would avoid, right? So like upworthy, these kinds of things. Now my guess is we might just be back in those sort of two-step flow of information world where it's like the people who post this stuff on their on their feeds are actually politically interested folks, and um, so their networks are probably going to be um, either tilted in their direction, or the people in their networks are going to know, oh, that's that's my crazy conservative uncle who likes to rant. I'm just going to ignore his post. Um, so that's one possibility. Um, but to answer your your question directly, I mean, Martin and I we consider ourselves more lumpers than splitters. If it's if people see it as news, we we consider it news. Um, if people consider it as information that they're consuming and making decisions off of, then it doesn't, I, I think that we're splitting hairs for like, well, this is the, you know, this is on the NPR and it was very, you know, done in a very, uh, lots of grabby toss and, and all that versus, you know, it's in, in on upworthy. So um, that's, where, that's where I fall in it.
5: Yeah, a couple of just thoughts on that. Pew had an interesting report within the past two weeks or so where they're looking at Twitter and found very partisan habits taking place on Twitter. So that's kind of a social media place that goes. I would definitely agree. The line between what's news and what's infotainment, um, that's a challenging one to draw. You have done exemplary uh, work in your own work on doing that, but it's tough to figure out what counts as what. Um, One other thing I'll add is Um, I did a study where um, I was looking at uh, exposure to comedic versus hard news to try to figure out whether or not comedic news could counter some of the tendencies to look at like-minded information. So there's a lot of um, research that suggests that when you encounter information in a comedic format, you don't process it as carefully, and you're you're using a lot of your cognitive resources to get the joke, so you don't counter-argue as much. And so I thought, well, if that's true, perhaps presenting things in a comedic frame might inhibit people from looking at information that only matches what they agree with. And wouldn't that be great? Because then we could say comedic news would be a great place to go. Um, so we did the study, and I was totally wrong. I'm sad to tell you that comedic <laughs> news, in oh, fact, man. made things a bit worse. So people were a little bit more likely to look at like-minded information. And they were less tolerant of views unlike their own after comedic news in comparison to a hard news one. So. I, uh, I had some plucky optimism about the, uh, uh, what could happen with comedic news, and I was uh, not correct. So, sadly, I think a similar source of patterns play out in comedic news just as they do in hard news. So John,
6: so, John Stewart is the marijuana that leads to the heroin of Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love
5: that quotation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I actually, anecdotally, I had yeah. this, yeah, I, I sometimes show uh, uh, daily show clips for just comic relief in my uh, in American Institutions class, and I had a triad of uh, conservatives come up to me and say, this is biasing class. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, <laughs> I was really embarrassed. So uh, that's consistent with your
6: findings. So you had to do conservative humor to put Glenn back on? Or? Well, you know,
1: uh, who was it? Um, uh, Dennis Miller tried so that. It, it didn't work out so, didn't well, out so well. <laughs> that's right.
0: That versus political news. So, in something like BuzzFeed, right, which people that are traditionally going to something like BuzzFeed are getting entertainment, yeah. right? So, they're then being exposed after that. Yeah. So, is your, your expectation that maybe through those types of channels that you can maybe expose some of that middle ground that's not so partisan Definitely. to?
3: That's, I think that's how we get back the sort of inadvertent audience that, that, that you know, in the heyday of podcast media that, that the news enjoyed. But I also think that we have to temper that sort of optimism that maybe this is a way to get news to people who are just interested in entertainment by the fact that it's going to be fairly episodic. It's not going to be contextualized, and so um, you know, how long will the you know, yeah, uh, a lot of people probably saw the the, the viral video about um, income inequality that that this is uh, about a year ago. Um, how you know, my question would be, how long does that stick with them, you know? And does it affect how they think about politics for more than a day? Um, maybe it does. I don't. I mean, I don't know. That would be the, my question. Well, the gateway drug, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you, that'd be the question. Can you convert an <clears throat> entertainment seeker into being a new seeker? Right.
5: I think the tricky part. We've done a couple of studies on incidental I exposure. I yeah, and the results of that suggest that it is very highly contextual, so you can't just put any news story there and expect everyone to watch it and retain everything. If it looks boring, they're going to glaze right past it. There's no incidental exposure for news that they don't care about. It's still, You still have to have that motivational component to look and retain the information. It's not just... I flash it up there, and all of a sudden, we all know it. What if we put pictures
3: of cats with it? I think that's, I mean, you have to have (laughs) the hook. (laughs) Most people have have more than zero motivation.
0: I mean,
1: it's a caricature to talk about, you know, utterly zero motivation. Most people, there's something in the political universe that they are passionate about.
5: But you have to find that hook. Right, Right. If you just have a story up there that says, David Dewhurst didn't win lieutenant governor in Texas, I think, you know, some people are glaze over. But if there's a hook there, then I think you can tap into that motivation. And he killed a cat. Right. And he (laughs) killed a cat. Then all of a sudden it's more
7: So, first of all, I have to say, I I thank you very much for doing this. This is really fascinating. Um, I happen to be an optimist about news and that while some people like to lambast Twitter and and various other uh, ways to get information, I tend to think that generation the more information that's available to them the more likely they're going to i mean twitter how many how many younger generation people are going to a link about ukraine that wouldn't really care about what's going on over there right now Um, so i've I've hypothesized for the last couple years that the impact of fox and msnbc is being diminished because of the diminished ability to be a single source news receiver that you know, the, the stereotypical guy in his underwear in his basement watching Fox News all day just doesn't really exist that much. In your data, did you look at that? I mean, are there people who are able in 2014 or 2010 even, able to mainline their news in a more conservative or a more liberal type of way?
1: In other words, avoid accidental exposure to the other side. I mean,
3: yeah. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I haven't looked at uh, the most recent data, but I think that we're definitely set up for doing that. I mean, you don't have to sit in your basement and watch Fox News all day, but even if you're going to venture onto the internet, you can. You know, I don't go to Drudge, right? For, i just now told you something more about myself than. than uh, but um, I mean, I think that it's really your question about this this incidental exposure, and I think that. There might be more opportunities for that at least right now, until you know, at some point things like BuzzFeed, I mean these things will get a reputation and then people will be able to avoid it. I, you know in the early 2000s, there really was a sort of a debate about whether or not Fox News was in fact fair and balanced but um, so no I, I think that actually we have the tools before us to totally screen out if we want to
4: actually uh, again, yes, 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 yes numbers should have, Yeah, Talia, you, you have, know
3: you, you know this, right? Yeah, I have
5: data on that in my yeah. book, and um, there are overlaps between them, but it really, really depends on how you measure it. So Nielsen, the traditional way that they measure it is six minutes or more of viewership of an outlet gets you counted as a viewer. Um, so I had the great privilege of working with Nielsen a little bit to change that up. Like, what if we look at people who watch 60 minutes in a week of Fox News? What percentage of them are watching 15 minutes or less of CNN or MSNBC? And... There are there are chunks of folks that are, we view MSNBC and very rarely view Fox, if at all. Um, you say chunks of folks that is that a how big chunk or a no, little? It's not big.
1: Okay.
5: Yeah, be consistent with all of us. I'm just looking at a week in time or something like that.
7: Yeah, how, how about watching Fox, and reading the New York Times?
3: Yeah, I mean there are people who do this, right? But my take on them with these, these are news junkies. So it's not like they're going to read the New York Times and then watch Fox and sort of end up in the middle they probably have predispositions and right. they're reading they're watching Fox because they you yeah. know what is the enemy thinking or they're reading the New York Times what is the that's enemy that's right thinking? opposition research yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and so it's not because it's going to yeah. persuade them in fact it just gives them tools to argue with the because news junkies are also the kind of people who are their conflict acceptant they want to get in arguments with their crazy uncle where the rest of us is exactly. like let Larry talk and be quiet <laughs> We have time for one more.
7: So, so I have one more, but okay. it's kind of out there a little bit, um, especially now that we talked about small numbers. I'm going to take it down even narrower. As the amount of channels continues to grow, and now we, it becomes more, I don't know if the word is socially acceptable, but more acceptable to watch foreign news stations, um, you know, Al Jazeera English and, and Telemundo. Is that socially acceptable yet? Yes. Well, I don't think so. <laughs> No, oh, here right. at the Kennedy School yeah. it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But is but it out actually, of the world, out of the, the heartland? Yeah, I don't, well, I don't think so. I mean, you look at Alger English's champ, uh, challenge to get on cables. They, they were you know, they were shut out. Um, and so is there research as to where that's going and the effect that's going to have when you start to, you know, BBC, when you start to get a, a, a non-American view of, of news, is that something you all looked in? Look, looking to look into I that. haven't.
3: I can speculate. Um,
5: I know of one research article that looked at this, but it was late in the Bush administration, and they were curious whether people who disliked the pro-Bush tenor of the news would switch to uh, news stations, foreign news stations, and found evidence, in fact, supporting that. So it's an interesting. I I'm really curious. I really enjoyed that article because it suggests these same sort of patterns are happening, but just yeah. kind of in a new way. That when the media were tilting in favor of a Bush position on Iraq. Some people that didn't agree with that then found another source that supported their view.
2: One, one of the big changes post Saudi Iraq. Um, <clears throat> so I should say my name's Andrew Jasper, I'm a journalist. Uh, I live in Melbourne, Australia. But one of the big changes happened is uh, The Guardian and the BBC um, have rocketed in terms of their ratings in the US. Uh, they now have a big office here, and it's because of Judith Miller and everything else that happened here. People just said, well, where else do out of places to go. Now, The Guardian claims it's the eighth largest red website for news in the US. That's pretty amazing. The BBC uh, is, is also in the top 10. I don't know the exact thing. Um, <coughs> these are all relatively new changes. And Al Jazeera now, I think, is making some real headway. You've got to remember that there's a very large Arab population as well mm-hmm. you know, here and elsewhere. So these are new sources of information. the older um, regimes, as well. But I I had one other question as an outsider, which is the power of um, big shows that are watched by lots of people, like The Simpsons. Now, I think The Simpsons is enormously political, but not in the way you are discussing it there. I think it brings. Which goes into the point that um, you were making earlier on about the cold bears and the, the Daily Shows, which is that we all know the power of humor. You know, we all know that when Obama stands up and speaks to the press corps, you know, he makes some good jokes. You know, that goes across well. You know, humor is a great way of getting stuff across because, frankly, a lot of people watching Fox and whatever else are saddos. They really are sad. But actually, if you want to get your fix of, you know, with a bit of humour, wow, that's that's really that's fun because you don't know where it's going to go, and and I think that that's kind of seeping in. And to your point about Twitter, you know, I mean, when one may think about Twitter, is kind of you know telling people about interesting stuff. And, you know, the world has moved from search to share. That's the world we now live in. Where we share the good stuff. Um, so I reckon there's. I always tell people, it's like um, it's like the tectonic plates are shifting. Right now, they're shifting where we just don't know where it's going to end up. But I think it will end up in a better place. And I don't know what that better place is going to look like now. But I think there are so many new stuff coming out, new ways of informing people, both informal politics and informally. But um, I think it's probably, uh, I think things will work out one way or another. But right now, we just need to be, the good and condemn the bad, and um, out of
7: that, some will unfold, sort of, uh, So I fact-checked this gentleman on a site that I have no clue whether it's accurate or not, and it says The Guardian is the number eight web- news website in the United States. There you go. Thank you. So, um, that's really going to have to be the last word. Because, um, BBC is number 13. Oh, well, so you're betting 500. <laughs> All right, so thank you guys again. That was r- really good. Thank you
1: all for coming. Thank you. Fantastic. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Nice.